0: Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 202nd episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an Oscar and Grammy winning film composer who is widely regarded by peers and critics alike as a trailblazing genius, having composed masterful scores to some 150 films, including 1998's Rain Man, 1989's Driving Miss Daisy, 1991's Thelma and Louise, 1992's League of Their Own, 1993's True Romance, 1994's The Lion King, 1995's Crimson Tide, 1997's As Good As It Gets, 1998's The Thin Red Lion, 2000's Gladiator, 2001's Black Hawk Down, 2003's The Last Samurai, The Dark Knight Trilogy, spanning 2005 through 2012, the 2006, 2007, and 2011 installments of the Pirates of the Caribbean series, 2010's Inception, 2013's 12 Years a Slave, 2014's Interstellar, and in 2017 alone, Boss Baby, Blade Runner 2049, and Dunker. For Blade Runner 2049, he and his frequent collaborator, Benjamin Walfish, shared a Critics' Choice Award nomination and are nominated for a BAFTA award as well. For Dunkirk, he was nominated for Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards and is nominated for Grammy and BAFTA awards. And for one film, the other, or possibly even both, he is likely to be recognized in the Best Original Score Oscar category on Tuesday, meaning Oscar nomination number 11 or 12. He won for The Lion King. I'm talking about the legendary Hans Zimmer. Over the course of our conversation in Zimmer's music studio at Remote Control Productions in Santa Monica, the 60-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how his interest in music was influenced by the presence of a piano in his childhood home in Germany, his neighbor who owned an unusual instrument, and the death of his father when he was just six. How he wound up in England playing in a band, writing music for commercials, and playing the keyboard as part of the band The Buggles, on their 1979 song, Video Killed the Radio Star, and consequently appearing in the first music video ever to air on MTV, how he broke into films under the tutelage of Stanley Myers, and then in collaboration with the likes of Tony and Ridley Scott and Barry Levinson, who loved the way he combined instruments and technology to produce music that sounded different than anything that had been done before, why he very nearly passed on projects for which he later produced iconic work, including The Lion King, The Pirates of the Caribbean films, and his first of many collaborations with Christopher Nolan, 2005's Batman Begins, as well as on performing publicly at 2017's Coachella Music Festival, where he proved a surprise hit. How and why time has been a constant visual and oral theme of his collaborations with Nolan, especially in Inception, Interstellar, and now Dunkirk, with its Shepard Tone-inspired score, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Zimmer, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate Mr. Feinbach, you're very welcome. <laughs> I guess to begin with, I want to ask you if you can share where you were born and raised, but also about your parents, because from what I understand, your mother was a musician and your father was an engineer, which is just so perfect and considering what you ended up doing.
2: My mother loved playing the piano, therefore we had a very decent piano at home. And my father being an inventor and an engineer meant that I instantly understood that the only way that piano could be used was if i modified it (laughs) and i suppose that's how i and we had an old tape recorder at home so i got into well i was just playing with it other people called it music concrete and where was this this was in frankfurt just outside frankfurt and to be honest i mean people always ask me when did i start playing music well the playing part is important because I can't remember when I started playing because I've always played. Mm-hmm. And other kids were playing with Legos and I played with pianos.
1: <laughs> From what I remember, you kind of resisted against any kind of formal training, the piano lessons and all that. But there was something that was cool, which was that you had a neighbor who I think was like the first person who believed in you having sort of innate musical talent, right? Well,
2: well, there, there are two parts to the story. First of all, I'm going to... It wasn't that I resisted. It was a sheer misunderstanding when I was six years old. And all I did was, you know, spend time on this piano making noise. My mother said, you know, would I like a piano teacher? And, you know, six years old don't really understand the proper meaning behind the words. I thought this guy would come and he would teach me how to... Get the things I was hearing in my head under my fingers right. and into the piano, and that's not at all what he was doing. No. He was trying to teach me scales and how to read, and and he was very dictatorial, very sort of German piano teacher. <laughs> and since we already started off, you know, at loggerheads and completely, he wanted to teach me one thing, and I wanted to learn a different thing. That lasted about two weeks, and I mean, it lasted two weeks, and, and, and you know, and the idiot went to my mom and said, "Look, it's either him or me," you know, and so he's the one that stopped it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and, and, and you know, it, it's it's like you know, it's, it's, it's I remember my mom in years to come saying, "You know, what a stupid thing to ask a mother. It's either him or me," <laughs> as if she would have picked the piano teacher, right, right. And he had very bad breath. So I remember that too, <laughs> but it sort of left me in this sort of weird. You know, because he used to bash me across the knuckles. So, you know, it's like all cliches apply. And it sort of left me in this sort of weird place where if you put musical notation in front of me to this day, my eyes just defocus. I can't see it. Wow. Maybe I should go and see a shrink, but I think it's worked <laughs> out so far. Well, and what about this neighbor? Well, the neighbor, the, the neighbor was this extraordinary man. He was a very good friend of the family's. And he had converted a medieval tower that you know that's why i said it was outside frankfurt it was Mm -hmm. a small village with a proper town wall and a proper tower and he'd converted this medieval tower taking all the floors out and put a baroque church organ into uh, 2500 pipes and i could just go over there and lay into this thing (laughs) and make an enormous racket and everybody thought it was just horrible and you know ooh, that that noise and and he thought it was great he thought he thought I had these courageous avant-garde harmonies and 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 he thought it was really interesting and it's really important important that you know I mean this is a man who played Bach every day Mm -hmm. you know and it was really important that somebody who means something because he really knows how to do something tells the little kids that no 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 your sense of adventure is to be applauded as opposed to you know uh, no you don't have to play Bach. Bach plays Bach. Right so now when you were just six your
1: father died and I know this obviously had a A big impact on you, I'm sure, but even more on your mother. She knew more, I'm sure, what was going on at that point. And one of the things I I read was that your pursuit of music, maybe as it grew more serious, how much was that about making her happy?
2: Well, no, it was entirely... I mean, look, first of all, music was always a refuge to me, even even before my father died. It was just this yummy thing you could lose yourself in. You know, and, and I mean, I see this with... Any child, but whatever they want to play with, be it Legos, be it music, be it drawing or doodling or whatever, you know, the way they can lose themselves. And I just, I, you know, we all love that feeling, if you can remember that feeling. So I just try to maintain that feeling. But then what happened when my father died, it truly was, I mean, there are two, two sides to it. One is, I honestly don't believe a six-year-old kid knows how to deal with mm-hmm. it. So you figure out how to lock it away. The other part is you see everybody around you being devastated. And I very quickly figured out that if I played the piano, it put a smile on my mum's face. And so, you know, I sort of became a bit of a, you know, the dancing bear or the, (laughs) you know, poodle that could do parlor tricks. And it took me a really long time to realize that that was part of why I kept pursuing things. I mean, yes, it was for my own self, but it was, I saw that music could have an effect, it could actually shift somebody's mood. So as you got a little bit older, let's say high school age,
1: what sort of music were you listening to and then how did you yourself remain involved with music? I think there
2: were bands and things in high school, right? Well, it really up until high school, all I listened to was classical music and a bit of jazz. I mean, I grew up in one of those houses, typical middle Europe household, where I went to my first opera when I was two and a half. We would go to a classical concert every week, or we would have string quartets come over. And that all stopped. The day my dad died, we went from having the wherewithal to to do all these things to absolute complete financial disaster. Mm -hmm. And I was notoriously awful at school. I was asked to leave nine times, not because I was particularly obnoxious, well, I still obnoxious, but <laughs> it was more. I was dreaming. I was a dreamer, you know. I was, I was constantly thinking about, oh, you know, be really cool this chord, and then this, and you know, I was writing music, mm-hmm. you know, during math, and that's not <laughs> what you're supposed to do. And I finally ended up in England, and England, of course, was, you know, was all about rock and roll, and I got really into rock, out of many reasons. It was something that we could do together. But you went to England in pursuit of a music career? no, 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 oh, no. For just I went to school. I mean, you know, I had, I had run out of schools on the continent, so <laughs> there was nowhere else to go. The only place that would have me is, you know, this was obviously before Brexit. Yes. Um, <laughs> You know, when they still allowed foreigners. Right. So I ended up in England and there were there were a couple of other kids who, you know, one was a drummer, one was a bass player, one was a guitarist, or you know, and we were just given the gatehouse basically as our sort of rehearsal room. And all we did all day long, play music. Which was great because for the first time I really got into this idea of playing with other people mm-hmm. and how much fun that is and the idea that if you're really lucky you're not the smartest guy in the room there's right. somebody else who's got a great idea and you know it drives the thing forward so this
1: was now the late 70s early 80s you're you're with a band you guys are rehearsing i guess overnight when you could have access to a studio that that yeah. was used during the day for commercials how did you now wind up getting paid for the first time really yourself because even when you were with this band oh and no, you were it was working. terrible yeah no no hang on
2: no wait 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 i was in, you know what in england was called a pub band so okay. we would play all the working men's clubs and all the pubs and we were actually one of the better off bands because we actually would take home 50 pounds a week it was a pittance but it was quite good and actually i was talking to somebody about it yesterday the the apartment I was living in had this electricity meter on the wall and you had to put five pence pieces into it right and if you ran off five p's all the electricity got switched off and here I was trying to do electronic music and there were (laughs) were like many nights where it's just like boff you know I just had a good idea and you know electricity goes off but I had this recording engineer Robin Black he let me go and sort of in the attic of the studio go and make a racket and George Martin had this company that did commercials, jingles for commercials, music for commercials. And they would do a lot of recording there. And Maggie Rodford, who ran these sessions, one day she, she said to Robin, the engineer, hey, do you know anybody who knows anything about synthesizers? And he said, well, we got this weird German kid up in the <laughs> attic. And uh, you had known about synthesizers from where? I think that comes apart from my father's technical background. Yeah. and. And I'd taken, you know, one of those early computers apart, which was supposed to be a word processor. And I thought, well, if if you can type letters into it, why can't you type notes into it? Mm -hmm. So all these sort of early musical composition languages, etc. I mean, all that stuff fascinated me because quite honestly, I mean, if you could make a noise with it, it was a musical instrument Mm to me. So... I met Maggie and she said, well, what are you doing Monday and what are you doing Thursday and what are you doing Friday? And I don't know, you know, when you're starting out as a musician, a lot of people, you meet a lot of people who promise you things and it it never happens. I remember I turned up for Monday, and I did the session. I turned up, and then she said, okay, see you Thursday, and then see you Friday, and I did these sessions. And And this was all for a commercial? All for commercials, and then I got my first paycheck, and I can't really remember the sessions, but I remember the first paycheck. (laughs) It was, you know, 35 pounds. It was hugely important that somebody actually paid money for music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a huge step in any musician's career where it becomes... Because everybody's telling you not to do it and get a real job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And you you, were hearing that too? I still hear that. You know, when I go into into a room and people don't know me and they go, oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a musician. They go, no, no, what do you do for a living? They find it quite implausible that you can actually make a living at this. (laughs) So here you're stepping
1: into the golden age of commercials in England. Just to mention some of the English filmmakers who were making commercials at that point, Ridley and Tony Scott, Hugh Hudson, Alan Parker, Nicholas Rogue, on and on and on, and this was the beginning of that for you, but then I think right around the same time, just before you turned 21, how do you wind up, I guess, with a different band and making a number one hit? This is to to familiarize anyone who doesn't realize this was you. Well,
2: by now, I did have a career as a studio musician, as a synth programmer, and Trevor Hall and Jeff Downs were trying to make a disco record, and they were trying to sort of make it uh, make it electronic. But they didn't really know how how that all worked. I mean, I'm making, I'm doing the short version. Jeff is a great keyboard player; he doesn't know how it works. And Trevor had this idea this the song kept floating around in his head called "Video Killed the Radio Star," <laughs> and. It was more than a song. He wanted to make this little mini movie. And it was two years before MTV started. And it was quite hard to persuade anybody, number one, to put up the money to record the song again. I mean, the hours we would work would be 10 o'clock at night till 9 o'clock in the morning. And then I would have a 10 o'clock in the morning session. Uh. I'd get to the end of a session, eat something, take a quick nap on the couch of the studio and we'd work on the record. And we made the video, the BBC refused to play it because we blow up a television set and they deemed that that that, that, that was too um, violent for children. But nonetheless, the record became a number one hit. And then... And the first music uh, video. Yes, and then, because we felt it, we just felt the world was changing and images and music needed to be combined in an interesting way and within 2 years of doing it MTV started and of course the first video what else could they play so first perfect. of all they didn't have any right. other material <laughs> i think it was it was on constant rotation for days how did you guys end up calling yourselves that? the buggles yeah that was trevor's idea it's so stupid <laughs> that it's too smart for most people it was a pun on the beatles and nobody understood that it was just it was just a joke and it was just a project we were doing on right. i mean none of us thought anything would happen beyond that record and actually what happened to me as soon as the record became a hit now suddenly the record company was very interested and and was was saying things like so yes what are you doing for the album well there weren't any other songs Mm -hmm. and I remember saying to Trevor you know well what what we're supposed to do here yeah you know and he goes well I suppose the same thing stylistically sort of over and over, and I thought, that's really boring. Mm-hmm. I don't, that's not how I want to spend my life. Mm-hmm. And I met a great film composer, again through George Martin's company and through Maggie, this guy Stanley Myers, and he took me, so I had a number one record, mm-hmm. but my ambition was to become his assistant and make coffee for him. I mean, that, that's really, because I knew I could learn something from him. And he was doing commercials or no, he was doing... He was doing some commercials, but he was doing films with Stephen Frears and Nick Rogue and everybody interesting. And he'd done The Deer Hunter and he knew how to use an orchestra. And so some of your first
1: film credits are as a quote-unquote music producer alongside him, right? This is like My Beautiful Longerette and 85? Uh, my
2: Beautiful Longerette we wrote together and sometimes I got a music producer credit, sometimes I got no credit, sometimes I got electronic music by, but after a while we just we would just split the films, literally and, and he was very fair I mean literally from day one we split everything down the middle Why do you think he took such an interest in you? I don't know, I don't know I always want to say because he had bought himself this impossible espresso machine that he didn't know how to use <laughs> but we, we, we just got on really well and you know we would challenge each other so my schooling was sitting I mean I remember you know the first time you know I was the coffee boy with Stanley sitting in a room with Nick Rogue and you know and then Stephen Fierce came you know and then Tim Bevan working title you know who was sort of my age Mm -hmm. I think Tim's exactly my age and they were making music videos and they had this idea to make a movie and none of us knew how to make movies. And Channel 4 had just appeared. And Channel 4 needed content. Mm-hmm. And it was great because they let us go and make My Beautiful Andrette or, wow. or Wish You Were Here or I don't know. I think I've done 27, 28 movies with wow. Working Title. And your first solo scoring of a movie was A
1: World Apart? Uh, yeah, for a Working titles. For a Working Title. And that is actually what led you to maybe your first really high-profile movie, which was Rain Man, right?
2: Yes, and I I like being very precise about this. Because Rain Man director Barry Levinson, Diana Levinson, his wife, saw this little World Apart working title movie, and she really liked the music. And she went out and bought Barry the CD. You know, She could have just liked the music and left it at that. But she went out and bought him the CD and brought the CD back to L.A. with her. And he started temping the film with it. And then he had just finished Good Morning Vietnam, so Mm -hmm. he was doing press in London for Good Morning Vietnam. And actually I I must ask him this, I I keep forgetting to ask him, but he had my address, but he didn't have my phone number. Mm -hmm. So it's 11 o'clock at night, I'm in my studio, it's 11 o'clock at night, you know, it's the only place to be is the studio, (laughs) right? And there's a knock on the door, I was, you know, and you—you you have to imagine this is like a really dodgy neighborhood. <laughs> you know, you don't—you don't really want to sort of go there. There's a knock on the door, and there's a man standing there, and, and he's going, "Hi, my name is Barry Levinson." Pause. You know, because I'm going, "Who is Barry Levinson?" He's going, "I'm a director," and I went, "Yeah, you and my mum both." <laughs> you know, because. But then I look behind him. And there's there's not one but two of these huge Daimler limos. They're crammed down into this tiny alley. I'm thinking, well, people in London don't drive these. Maybe <laughs> maybe he's telling the truth. Right. So I said, So come on in then. You know, and I was in the middle of recording something and you know, and he's and he saw how I was using computers and stuff, and he thought it was really interesting. And so we spent a night talking. You know, we spent a night Chatting about how I do things, and and he thought I was really interesting. He thought it was really like a, a revolutionary way of working, mm-hmm. and so he said, "Look, I'd love you to come to Los Angeles." You know, and he seemed to be a bit worried about even asking me this. You know, he told me later that he thought maybe I didn't want to come to mm-hmm. cesspool Hollywood, <laughs> that that I just wanted to do my small working title art movies, right. and he was working on this 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 little film but it had Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in it. Uh, and I said, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd love, said, no, yeah, sign me up. He didn't have a script, he just told me the story. And it got me on a plane, I saw the film, and, and now I didn't know anybody here. So I said, is it okay if I write it in your office? So my recording engineer, Al Clay big all to his friends. <laughs> so big all and I moved into the office, right next to the cutting room and it was a great way of working I mean we just had our synthesizers in there and I remember once we were supposed to go to Barry's house to meet him and somebody had given us directions but you just turn left on sunset and then right on I don't know. <laughs> we got so lost. We ended up in some neighborhood where we stopped. We stopped and asked for directions. The guys were literally, one of them was talking to us and the other ones were taking the hubcaps off the car. <laughs> oh my God. So so we we knew we were in the wrong neighborhood. But, right. it, you know, it was an adventure. And then, so so the whole score was really written and done in in Barry's office. And it, it, it was actually a very good way of working because the end of the movie was very fragile. It couldn't have a happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, where they were going to stay together. The Dustin Hoffman character had to go back to the hospital, to the mm-hmm. home. But how to not leave the audience completely depressed? Mm-hmm. So I would literally write four bars, you know, Barry would cut eight seconds, and then, you know, we, we just... Work together until the tone was right for this thing.
1: And we should note that was Oscar nomination number one for you. And also what's kind of amazing is that it was in the middle of what was actually a three-year streak of movies that you scored winning the Best Picture Oscar. Because somehow you did the, the Last Emperor came out the year before. Oh, yeah.
2: I was the assistant, assistant, assistant. Okay. So one. you yeah. you were
1: part of Last yeah. Emperor. Then you'd have Rain Man. And then the next year, Driving Miss Daisy.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: It's kind of amazing. But I know that actually some of your most frequent early collaborators were
2: the Scots, Tony and Absolutely. Ridley, right? But and- Tony, actually was before Barry offered me this job, Tony had heard A World Apart. You know, A World Apart is actually a really good score that nobody mm. knows. Tony had heard A World Apart and offered me a movie called Revenge. Mm-hmm. And we had long, 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 long chats about it. And then his producer, of course, went, Hans who? Uh. You know? Get real Tony, and I think Tony always felt ownership to a certain degree that he found me, <laughs> Not Barry. Know? Not Barry, and not Ridley. Right. Yeah. You know? Well let's
1: just note for listeners, with Tony you did Days of Thunder in nineteen ninety, True Romance, nineteen ninety three, and Crimson Tide in nineteen ninety five. With Ridley you did Black Rain in nineteen eighty nine, and Louise, nineteen ninety one, Gladiator two thousand, Blackhawk Down, two thousand one, and Match Sick Men two thousand three. It seems like the thing that What
2: happened to Hannibal? Did you
1: put Did I miss putting that one in here? Yeah. I apologize. Hannibal as well. I'm sure there were more. And there you may be. You got yeah. tell about Louise, yeah. Yes. But All it right. seems like the thing, though, that they had in common was that they both encouraged a sense of adventurism with your scoring.
2: I mean, let's... No, no, no. no, no. Th- think about it differently. Think Okay. Of, okay. Just, I mean, it's easier. Think about the movies Ridley made. Yeah. Gladiator couldn't be any more different from Black Hawk Down. Couldn't be any more different from uh, Thelma yeah Couldn't be any more different from from Mad Sick Men. So this was the thing that I was escaping from the band existence. You know, mm-hmm. the band existence is verse chorus verse chorus, and you better stick with your style. If you have a quirky pop style, then that's what you do. Right. I remember distinctly, you know, him phoning me up for Gladiator. At nine o'clock in the morning, going, hey, do you want to do a gladiator movie? And me just laughing because I thought I just kept thinking, oh, he's going to make one of those men in skirts and sandals yeah. movies. <laughs> he said, no, it's not like that. And he started explaining it, mm-hmm. and I see why he wanted to make it, mm-hmm. you know. And so the thing that happens to film composers that happens to very few other people, I think, is. Every movie starts off with somebody telling you a story. Hey, I want to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And the way Ridley and I always worked was, you know, actually that was an exception that he told me over the phone. He'd go, I have an idea. Let's go and have dinner. And we'd go and have dinner, and he'd start talking about the movie, and he'd start drawing and he's an, he's an extraordinary mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. So he can draw as fast as he can speak. Mm-hmm. And so the movie would come alive in front of me in these drawings. And quite honestly, I mean, that for me was always the ideal way of working. So mm-hmm. I knew what was in his head. And at the same time, I would have complete and utter freedom. It's like I remember Gladiator going, you know, uh, I was trying to figure out a style. And uh, I mean, Gladiator is full of experiments. One of them was, you know, I didn't want to do straight action music. Mm. And we were talking about what we love about the art of Rome, you know, the sculptures, the, the the architecture, everything. And then really that it was all built on the blood of slaves. And everything that to this day that we look at as as beauty and we marvel at its at its aesthetic finesse is all built on you know the, the backs of other people, mm-hmm. of other nations. Mm-hmm. So we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the music somehow reflected that? So, so I thought, what, what's the most benign music you can have? What's the prettiest music you can have? And I thought, oh, Viennese waltzes. Mm-hmm. What if we based all the battle scenes on Viennese waltzes, but made them really savage? Mm-hmm. You know, it just showed the other side of the of the coin. You know, beauty somehow comes from the toil and injustice. Mm -hmm.
1: One of those that I mentioned that I want to ask you about actually is one of the collaborations with Tony and that is Crimson Tide. I've done a lot of reading and talking to people who know a lot more about music than I do. And they seem to feel that that one in some ways was the most revolutionary of those early scores because you were for the first time, I think bringing in synthesizers in the way that you did and merging orchestra choir Everything. And synthesizer, just everything. I everything. don't know, and then it influenced a lot of things that came after it from other people. Do you do you see that?
2: Yeah, I think I think so. That started out as, after all, we already had one under our belt with Days of Thunder, mm-hmm. but we didn't get to do what we wanted to do on Days of Thunder. It just because you know it was a race car movie and it was very limited in what it you know what you could get away with, and Crimson Tide was sort of different, and it really was. Tony and I wanting to experiment. I mean, one of the things was the choirs. I had this idea of of only using low men, male voices, and there wouldn't be any treble, there wouldn't be any top end in it. So it would be like the whole sound would be as if the weight of the ocean was on the music. And whenever I ran out of orchestral colors, i I'd, I'd, you see, to me, there's no difference between a synthesizer and a violin. I mean, they're, they're all things that make music. The only difference is you have to go and make your own sounds in a synthesizer. Tony was, it's the same way, the way he used filters. I mean, uh, filters and synthesizers, Tony was forever putting filters in front of lenses. So Mm -hmm. that's something we never spoke about. It's just something we very organically did. A year before
1: Crimson Tide, just to jump backwards for a second, is the year that you made the film that you ended up winning your Oscar for, The Lion King, you have said you didn't even want to do it. And I think part of that was somewhat, it sounds like, a a resistance to writing musicals generally?
2: Yes. How am I going to say this politely? Look, I grew up with opera, and sometimes, maybe, perhaps, you know, on a a bad-taste day, you'd go and see a Viennese operetta. But musical, to us Europeans, was just, you know... it was just like like a bad operetta, so I just <laughs> I just didn't want to do that, and I kept saying to them, and it usually was about princesses. By the way, now I love—I mean, there are so many great musicals. I mean, starting with West Side Story mm-hmm. to Kiss Me Kate, or, you know, you name it. I mean, musicals actually. But you know, I was young and opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the problem with being young is you think you know it all, mm-hmm. right? And they kept saying to me, no, no, we don't want you to write one of the, we don't want you to write a Disney musical. And finally, I mean, I folded because my daughter Zoe was six years old at the time. And I realized I'd never been able to take her to a premiere because you couldn't really take your kids to a Ridley Scott movie, right? <laughs> right? And so I thought, I'll do it for her. I said to them right away, But I want to set it in Africa because, I mean, I really want to set it in Africa. And I had this friend, Lebo Morake, who I met as a very good car washer in the valley. And he was mm-hmm. a political refugee from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And Lebo came in and we, you know, it was really important to me that that first thing you hear is the anti-European princess movie sound. So that that shout, that 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 call that he does right at the beginning of the movie—I just wanted everybody to know—we're not in Kansas anymore, <laughs> you know. And and basically, not to shock people, but just to say to them, this is different. Mm-hmm. So here it is: this is different, and we're inviting you on this adventure. Will you come along with us? You know, open the doors and invite them into this this completely different thing.
1: That's amazing. Well, I want to ask you about the. Aftermath of winning an Oscar for you, because I'll tell you exactly. L- 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 after- l- yeah. l- let me just t- set it up for you because I think I know where you may want to go here. So I just want to say, on the one hand, it certainly had to have raised your profile. Not that it wasn't big to begin with, but on the other hand, you have said, and I want to quote back to you something that you said to me last time I interviewed you here, maybe like five years ago. Quote: I remember with Lion King* winning the Oscar, walking down there, getting up on that stage being terrified of having to speak in public, you know, I get really bad stage fright. But I looked out there and everybody was applauding and everybody was happy. And I feel this wave of adoration coming towards me. And the devil in me says, oh, this feels pretty good. And the devil goes, if you write pretty music like that again, you can maybe come back, close quote. What's wrong with writing music that would get you there? Well, because it's the end of
2: creativity. Mm -hmm. So two things. I mean, I realized that that was the devil. I mean, literally standing up there. I'm glad you reminded me of this because I sort of forgot that I said that, you know, and I think I've done everything I possibly could to go against that because success can be the end of invention. And look, I, I remember it was, it was a, fantastic night it was so much fun you know elton was throwing a party Mm -hmm. you know i got home at four o'clock in the morning (laughs) got to the studio with a serious hangover for a 10 o'clock meeting with tony and jerry brockheimer on crimson tide you know and i played them something and they went it's absolutely awful you know um (laughs) And so you know, I promise you, they didn't even acknowledge that I won an Oscar, oh my God. And, and that was great. Yeah. You know, it was like, okay, we're back. You know, it, we're, back. we're back. Back m- to work. Back to work, and and this is what I love. So moving forward, when
1: you were receiving various offers, how do you decide? Since there was this resistance to doing the expected thing that, that somebody would do to go after additional Oscars or that more kind of traditional acclaim. You made such eclectic choices. On the one hand, there were some other big studio-type things like the Pirates of the
2: Caribbean movies. I, oh, I didn't pick that one. It picked me. I, I, I kept saying to Gore, I was working with Gore on a little film called The Ring. Okay. I kept saying to him, what are you doing next? He goes, well, I'm thinking of doing a pirate movie. A pirate movie, right. Okay. Yeah uh, well you know, from the right, the Disneyland right. Now that sounded like where I was with Disney Broadway Princess movies. I'm right. going, okay. you gotta be kidding me. That that's yeah, that's like one of the worst ideas I ever heard. <laughs> so there was no way I was gonna do it. And I was working with Edswick and Tom Cruise on Last Samurai when I get a phone and I had promised them, I had promised them up, down, left, right, and center that I wasn't going to moonlight on anything else and (laughs) dedicate my life to their movie. I get a phone call from my friend Gore on a Sunday. He's going, I got a bit of trouble here. Will you just come have a look at the pirate movie that you have no faith in and you don't (laughs) believe in? And I went to see this movie and... I loved it. I love when somebody does something that I can't possibly imagine, and it's so great, and it was so fun, and I so realized I am not a director, and Gavrobinsky is a brilliant director, and he had a vision, and he had to make the movie. He couldn't tell me, you know. It still had the dog in it from the ride, <laughs> and it was great. And I said, "Look, I, pro- I promised, I promised, I promised, I wasn't going to go and do anything." But I had um, a young composer here called Klaus Bartelt. Tell you what, give Klaus a go, see see if this goes. And I mean, these guys were seriously mm-hmm. out of time. I mean, they were in big trouble. So Klaus starts, does whatever he does, and, and I'm at the studio the next day, and I walk into a meeting and I can just see Jerry and Gore's face It's like, this isn't happening, <laughs> and they didn't say anything to me. I just looked at them and I just went, "Okay, I'll go home. I'll write something." Wow. And Melissa Murick, who was my music editor, she just my assistant at the time. You know, she's an amazing music editor. And I, she, she and I, because I, I wasn't, I couldn't work here. I had, to, I had to actually work from home. I went home, and we have this demo that floats around the internet in a rather em- embarrassing way. I think it's called four AM. Uh-huh. So at seven thirty at night I started writing and the beginning is like uh, it's not very good. It's it's of it goes into a bit of gladiator territory. I can't I can't quite find my voice. But suddenly, ooh, here are the tunes. And that so one tune after the other, they just start popping out of me. Except, you know, by about five o'clock I am um, <laughs> you know, the fingers aren't moving properly yeah, anymore. Yeah. and But I still keep having ideas for tunes, and I'm trying to play these tunes, and everything's falling apart, but my head is exploding with tunes. So this one demo really became the basis for, to this day, all the pirate movies. Wow. I'm not gloating, I'm not being proud, or I'm not saying I'm brilliant or anything like this by saying I wrote it in one night. Oh, that's amazing. But I had two friends... Who were in trouble, and I needed to help them out. That's you great. know, you have very unusually close relationships
1: with a lot of the filmmakers you work with. Let's introduce here, as good a point as any, to do so. The beginning of your relationship with Christopher Nolan, which didn't wasn't that long after the first Pirates movie. Here we are; it's two thousand five, and Is that when we started. I think so, right? Because yeah. Batman Begins, right? Right. So, just to first remind people of how many things you've done together since then. Starts with Batman Begins, and then, of course, there's also The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. That's 2008 and 2012. That's the Dark Knight trilogy. In between, you had Inception in 2010, then Interstellar in 2014, now Dunkirk in 2017. How did he first even reach out to you, and then why was it that with Batman Begins, your initial inclination
2: was to not do it? How did he reach out to me? The way people reach out, you know, they lift up the phone. (laughs) And Chris and Emma were in London prepping Batman Begins. And I went down to Shepparton to see them. And I really, I really, really liked both of them, you know, and I loved Memento anyway. And I thought Chris was really interesting. And I thought his take was really interesting. But because his take was serious I actually felt I didn't know how to split my personality between the incredibly elegant and suave and sophisticated Bruce Wayne and the slightly darker man with the mask. And I kept saying, "Chris, I don't, I, I, don't think I'm the right guy. I don't know how to do justice to both characters." And he said, "Look, why don't you get a friend in? You know, I mean, you'd split, split the character into two different people," and James Cian. Howard and I had been friends forever and we always talked about you know again this band thing you know it's it's so much fun making music together so I think I suggested James to Chris before I even found James and Chris thought it was a good idea because I mean James is to my mind he can't help but be elegant mm-hmm. in his writing mm-hmm. he can just do things that I cannot do mm. you know I, I marvel at the way he writes music Mm -hmm. and so we had this discussion that we that we were literally going to go and share this but so now i'm I'm, now i'm going to go and drop james in it why not so we were going to go and do this in london and we had organized it in a way that we were going to have one floor of air studios you know and one side of the corridor was my studio and the other side of the corridor was james's (laughs) And before we left, James gave me a very serious speech going, Now, we've we've been friends for a long time, but we've never worked together. So I just want to set some ground rules. I don't work past seven o'clock in the evening. (laughs) And when I write, nobody can hear what I'm doing until I'm ready to play it to somebody. So the doors you have to be totally soundproof. My room has to be completely and utterly soundproof. I think we left at one o'clock in the morning, the first (laughs) night. And after that, I mean, I I remember there were lots of times where it's like, my team and I were sitting downstairs in the canteen. It's 4.30 in the morning. And we're going, God, is James ever going to want to go home? (laughs) And within the first week, the two facing studios, the doors were just open, you know, and we were just you know, there'd be a lot of three-handed keyboard playing going on, you know. <laughs> I'd be playing something, coming up with an idea, and James' hand would reach across, and you know, no, no, what about this note? What about... Mm-hmm. So it really, and it it, it was the most, and Chris, I mean, Chris was totally in the middle of it, and, and, and I realized what a great luxury that was uh, in a funny way for a director as well because it doesn't matter if you're the best composer in the world you're playing something where you're trying to writing music for film is not about doing what the director tells you to do because to be honest they can't really tell you what Mm -hmm, to do mm -hmm. you know so the idea is you're supposed to surprise them and do your take on what you think the movie is about but sometimes sometimes you know, there'll be bits, or maybe whole pieces, or a whole style, which is so different to the aesthetic of uh, that the filmmaker is trying to create. So there, there is no way out, and everybody has gone through it, where it's just the director and you, and the director has to give you the bad news that this piece that you have toiled over, that you've sweated blood over, isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about having James, myself and Chris in the same room, if there was something wrong with one of my pieces. I mean, by the time Chris was Chris stopped saying, you know, what the problem was, James would already have a mm-hmm. solution and vice versa. And we were all we were all pushing each other, including, you know, not so much pushing each other, but we with the third person in the room, there's always going to be an answer. Mm-hmm. And it just allows you to be more experimental in a way. I mean, there's safety in numbers.
1: It seems interesting that as far back as Inception, certainly Interstellar, and now definitely with Dunkirk, there is a great fascination for Chris with the idea of time and that then manifesting itself in the music. I mean, with with Inception, can you share the Edith Piaf example of what you did with her song and how you played with time in a movie that itself is sort of about time.
2: First of all, I, I think it's it's worth remembering, you know because you brought up you were the one who brought up the Batman movies. So it's, it's three Batman movies to you, but mm-hmm. it was 12 years of our life. Oh, yeah. so that's time. that's oh, yeah. time put in. I think time is an interesting thing. you know I, I am as fascinated with time and how you can play with time as much as Chris is and of course, for musicians, it's so much easier than for for people that work in words, because all music is about time. And you know, music can only exist. It's not like a painting that you can stare at. Music actually has to move in time for it to exist, and then. You know, with music, you have the huge advantage that you automatically, a piece of music is all about how do you divide time up? And within that, within that Rubik's Cube, you know, you can go to all these different levels and all these different layers of time. And so when, when Chris had written Inception, I realized partly people might get a little confused intellectually by this the, these different layers, etc. But it was very easy for music to go and tell you where you were. And the PF song was right at the beginning of of the uh, script. And I had actually found a, I know this is probably not the way we're supposed to do these things, but I found this great version of the song on YouTube. <laughs> and Chris and I really loved it. And then came the first hurdle, which was he cast Mario Cotilla. So we then had to ask ourselves, are people going to think we're being sort of self-referential by casting the actress who had played Edith Piaf incredibly successfully? Mm-hmm. But we loved the song so much, mm-hmm. you know. We thought, you know, people are, are, people hopefully aren't going to make that connection. Mm-hmm. And then the next hurdle was budget. It's very expensive to shoot in Paris, and there was a suggestion by the studio that those scenes should really be shot in London. And I remember saying to Chris, but, but as soon as you say Paris, everybody knows there is a love story. There's a passionate, tragic love story in this thing. So it's going to somehow cost you much more to try to build up the idea of a love story if you don't use Paris. Right. So that was a persuasive argument to go and keep those scenes and, and therefore keep the song as well. And manipulating
1: the song, slowing it down, doing things. Well,
2: well. it's a tiny bit of a cheat. So in the intro of the PF, there are two, two trombone chords. Boom, 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 right? And in the script, it says, you know, you hear these huge horns blasting across the city. And we always thought, wouldn't it be fun if you thought maybe that you were hearing those chords from from the Piaf slowed way, 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 way down. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, what happened was, Chris and I found ourselves at a... I had just finished Sherlock Holmes and I was dead tired and I was going to go on a holiday because I there was nothing left in me. <laughs> but Chris and I found ourselves at a party in London and we don't do parties very well, so we're <laughs> in a corner. And we're talking about inception as opposed to me going on a holiday and we have this idea of inviting 12 or something brass players into a studio and just experimenting and so that's really where that came about so it's definitely not the piaf notes and we went through extraordinary you know like everybody puts their faith in science and computers etc and then it all goes horribly wrong we did put actually our faith into you know this company who could go and isolate the notes for us out of the you know and it never sounded as good as what we had done Mm -hmm. so to be really honest i mean the in inception it's a, a creation from scratch yeah
1: before we go into 2017, and it's an amazing set 2017 you had between Dunkirk, Blade Runner 2049, and The Boss Baby, let me just ask you about a real-world thing that happened in 2010 that I think, you know, just first to, to set the context, I think you and a lot of people who do what you do are, you know, you by its nature, you're sort of for a lot of your time, you work in a space like this where it's sort of off with other musicians maybe or by yourself. And then you periodically, when your movies come out or whatever, you now have to go out and deal with people like me or Not out cute. in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and the person who is your, who essentially for many years served as your translator in between these two worlds was Ronnie Chasen. And in 2010, this person, woman who was a very experienced and respected publicist it was one of the craziest things that ever happened was found murdered in in beverly Beverly hills and i just wonder how obviously she was a somebody you knew for a long time and worked closely with and i think you know we're were close with
2: she was i mean she was like my best friend she was she and my mother got on really well and it sort of then she became sort of my American mother Mm -hmm. in a funny way. Let's talk about Ronnie for for a moment. I mean, the last time I saw Ronnie was at the Governor's Awards. I had just finished Inception and the last thing she heard me play was Time From Inception. First thing she ever heard me play was Driving Miss Daisy. And she went, oh, you're good. I can do something with you. (laughs) You know, tuck your shirt in, you know? How do I handle the press? Well, don't say anything stupid. Okay. <laughs> but so, you know, and we just, you know, she was godmother to all the children. She was she was very close to me. And, you know, I remember really the last thing she heard was me playing Time. And then I remember being at the Governor's Awards, yeah. big tables. I'm yeah. sitting at a table with Chris and Ronnie is there. And Chris says, oh, Clint Eastwood. I always wanted to meet Clint Eastwood. I'm going, that's easy. Ronnie, can you introduce Chris to Clint Eastwood? So I'm watching the two of them, these two great filmmakers, mm-hmm. are chatting to each other, and Ronnie is standing next to them, and I'm thinking, look at look at her. She's, she's at the top of her game. Look at this. Here's the young... Up and coming great filmmaker talking to the man who will not stop work and carries on making genius movies one after the other. And, you know, she's now the link between the two of them. And that literally was the last moment I saw her that night. And then, you know, within days of that, she was murdered. And so now let's do go to 2017 because the stage fright thing. You know, finally, all my musicians friends ganged up on me and made me leave this wonderful safe room and go out on stage. and And, and the first thing I thought was, "Well, you're wh-
1: talking about Coachella."
2: Coachella, yes. So, well, there, there are a few things, but but so I, we did a whole tour. I mean, I've now been to every continent, uh-huh. but I wanted, to, I needed to figure out what it was about, and so. What I made it about, I made it about Ronnie because she would have been, you know, she was, you know, she was one of those people who's going, ah, stage fright, just, just being silly. So I would start the set with Driving a Stacy and I would end the set with Time. So the whole thing was, it was really about the life I had lived with her, mm-hmm. you know, and when I play Time, and it, you know, now I've, you know, we didn't. Something like 90 shows, all in all. 47,398 miles last year. Wow. So when we get to time, it just, my mind just slips into all these memories of her, you know, just these little things. And I just play it for her. And then right, when we get right to the end of it, I just play it for me. So she was a very important friend. You know, it's as simple as that. And unbelievable tragedy. Yeah. Unnecessary you know and then all these rumors started up etc you know and and i i kept thinking you know like when i was looking at some of those rumors how could any of these rumors be true because i i would get phone calls from ronnie at three o'clock in the morning because she was still working Mm -hmm. and i was the only one up you know Mm -hmm. i mean she truly had a heart of gold and she had just she had just gotten to that point in her life where i think she she was finding, you know, happiness. She, she'd gotten herself this apartment in Paris. She's doing most of her business from the Café Fleur, you know, and and then that. So the me going out and leaving my comfort zone behind was very much... Now that I'm through it, I, can t- I, I talk about it and talk about it beforehand because what if it goes wrong and I embarrass Ronnie, right? But it was very much going this is a way of honoring her That's this a is a way of doing it and then she would have agreed with me there's this thing about film music which is you pigeonhole. pigeonholed you write film music you know why can't it just be music so when the opportunity came to go and do Coachella I thought Let's just see let's just see let's just unleash this let's just it has to be done you nobody's ever dragged an orchestra and a choir into the desert it's time we dragged an orchestra and choir into the desert and yeah I was I I was nervous I was not as nervous as the people you know who ran Contella, et cetera, etc the promoters were you I mean, know whose idea was it it really was it was Mark Brickman my lighting designer, oh. who said you should do. Coachella, and I just saw it as a way of proving, I knew I could sell out shows that were uh, about hardcore film music aficionados. But I wanted to see what would happen if you didn't have a film music crowd. And I mean, remember, my shows are odd, because I don't show a single frame, I don't show any footage from the movies. It's all lights and Amazing musicianship, Uh and I wanted to—I want to show off the musicians, Uh and I'm always finding this hard to say because you know I am brought up with just the right amount of false modesty, (laughs) but honestly, we did Coachella and we rocked and we blew them away, yeah, and it was great to hear from the other artists, you know that. God, I, I ran into Jimmy Jam recently. I'm a huge, you know, I mean, I think he's amazing, and he's, you know, he's going. Well, you know, I took my 17-year-old son to see you guys, and he didn't want to go and see you, and the next day he bought all the CDs. <laughs> so that thing, breaking out of all the little pigeonholes, the the little boxes everybody puts you in, I mean, that's what I'm interested in.
1: And just being able to go between things, right? I mean, because yes. then you come back and do the film scores. But Absolutely. It's, it's no, now nobody, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this may be, Surprised, or maybe they never knew. For instance, that it's not like this is a new interest of yours. They should go and listen to the the Buggles or any of these other things along the way.
2: You know, and and, and my endlessly forgotten comedies. I mean, I, you know, look, the, the the work I've done with Jim Brooks, you know, mm-hmm. and as good as it gets, etc. Yeah. I mean, always Nancy Myers. You know, I mean, the, the, there is that other side to me. You know, I'm not just Mr. Epic, right? And <laughs> you know, and Dunkirk was really important for Chris for me to go and invent a new music. You have said that,
1: quote, if there are method actors, I suppose I'm a method composer, close quote. And in the case of Dunkirk, I guess the idea is presented to you, and then you decided to, you know, showing your methodness here, you were, I guess, in Europe, Decide to go to Dunkirk. No. Well, let me let you yeah. tell... So you you go to Dunkirk, and you can pick up the story from there.
2: Well... There are many things to say about Dunkirk. One of them was I actually went to the beach on the day of the anniversary, and they're, they're shooting there, the beach at Dunkirk. And I thought, because with Chris, there, we have this strange way of working where basically I write, he shoots. I I don't have footage, but we talk about things and we know what we want to do. So I don't write to picture. He shoots to music well he shoots to music if he's lucky and i've delivered something and i'm always behind and i'm always late because (laughs) it takes me forever to solve the problems
1: but normally you on a normal basis you would write to footage
2: inception wasn't really written to footage i remember writing all the inception bits and because i had a clear idea of what i wanted to do Mm -hmm. and sending them to chris who was shooting i think he was in canada or iceland or somewhere like i can't remember somewhere far away and and he finished shooting i said okay i know you got a cut send me the picture and he goes mm, you know it's been going really well with you just uh, <laughs> sending me this music why don't you finish the score and then we look at the cut so i actually finished the first draft of the whole of inception without seeing wow. s- seeing the movie and i remember you had that with malik too with thin red line right you wrote yeah, it yeah, yeah. before six and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not a bad way. It's, it's. I, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense that I always see the musicians as sort of the last actors that get hired onto the movie. But there's something good if your last actors are there right at the beginning. That your whole team, your whole everything that gives voice to the movie is is, is assembled right from the word go. And I mean, even Batman Begins. I remember the. I was here. They were in London, and Chris phoning me and going, you know, I have this shot, and the shot is Batman standing on the skyscraper overlooking the city, and I don't know how to get to the shot, and you know, and he was explaining what the shot, what shots he was coming off, and he said, can you just, just, just rough something in, just, just, just whatever this suggests to you, and I remember you know doing just this really rough demo. Mm-hmm. And that is still, you know, in the movie, you know, and Batman, would you wouldn't have the iconic shot of him on the building. Mm -hmm. Music needed to solve it. Music needed to go and lead you to that shot. But Dunkirk's slightly different because I think, if I really think about it, Mm -hmm. we've been working on this idea since Batman Begins. I think the fundamental idea is to make and this is what Chris did i think chris went out and he made a really bold experimental movie start off there secondly i think the thing that we already started doing batman begins and through all our movies we try to blur the line between the visuals and the sound so that you cannot talk about the score without talking about the images and vice versa mm-hmm. and you cannot because at the end of the day you will experience it as one complete world that uh, is... i
1: just want to quote back to you what he said on that topic he said quote of any of the films i've done this dunkirk had the tightest fusion between music picture and sound effects which made editing very difficult close
2: quote but
1: that he, he felt what you're saying that there was just it's like a united thing
2: But, you know, and we actually started this idea on Batman Begins because we could create a world, you know, we could create the city that didn't exist. And so uh, I remember on Batman Begins, you know, there were the the sound designers and then this friend of mine, Mel Weston, who is, I never know, is he a musician or is he, he really went to art school to become a painter. And Mm -hmm. so there's this layer Between let's call it sound effects, then there's this this layer of our world, and then there's the layer of music, so that the atmospheres are so it's absolutely seamless, and you know we've been working on on you know we've been refining this idea for so long, and you know it's interesting this relationship with Chris because sometimes I get to lead a bit, and he follows, and then other times he leads and I follow, Mm -hmm. like. Interstellar, you know, he came to me with this idea of if he gave me one page of prose but wouldn't tell me what the movie was about, would I give him one day and write a piece of music? And the prose was basically about a father's relationship to his children. And I wrote this unbelievably fragile piece, you know, called him up, he came down, I played it to him. And he said, well, I suppose I better make the movie now. <laughs> and I said, well, what is the movie? Yeah. You know?" And he, he described this epic journey through space. And I said, but I've just written you the most fragile personal piece of music. He goes, yeah, I know where the heart of the story is now. So in a funny way, for that moment I was reading, it was very much the opposite on Dunkirk. Before, Dunk, before yeah.
1: you say how, can I just make the point that it's kind of interesting to me that... There's a through line through a lot of your work, whether it's The Lion King or it's Interstellar and others in between where it's the parent-child and often father-child relationship. I understand that you didn't write these movies or direct them, but at the same time, do you think that the reason you've done some of your best work on these is because that idea of the father child relationship which you were robbed of at such a young age particularly resonates with you
2: well maybe yes but you know i think interstellar is much simpler chris knows my son jake very well Mm -hmm. and i love my kids i really do i mean it's like i love my children in the way i feel i can't feel love for anything else Mm -hmm. you know with music sort of coming, sneaking in as a close second. But <laughs> so to be a little bit more specific about that letter he wrote me, yes, because in the movie, of course, it's a father-daughter relationship, but he had very cleverly, sneakily, craftily written it about a father and a son. So he was thinking he knew what he knew what buttons to push with me, <laughs> right? It was absolutely the right way to do. Yeah. But then when we when we came to Dunkirk. It was right from the go, Mm -hmm. reading the script. I, I realized it had been written in a musical form, and Chris was way, way, way ahead of me, all the way through the movie, all the way through the movie. This was strictly about figuring out how to make the best Chris Nolan experiment, and in his writing, there was this this musical idea of the shepherd tone. Yes, which,
1: please tell people what that means.
2: If you ever seen a barber pole, which mm-hmm. is you know the the this line that that goes like a candy up cane. for yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like a candy cane. It's a, a never ending rising tone. So now sidebar. That was sort of the shape of the screenplay and how he was playing with time in the screenplay. So the sidebar is this. The sidebar is. I wasn't going to go and do exactly that in the score. And some of the things I did in the score, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because this is what's happened to us since Batman Begins. As soon as we do Batman Begins, every other movie starts sounding like Batman Begins. When we did our Inception brass, Brams. Suddenly, every trailer's got it. And mm-hmm. look, in Inception, it was a story point. In a trailer, it's just a cheap mm-hmm. device to get you from one, you know, shot to the next. So I had an idea of doing something in Dunkirk, which still embraced sort of the philosophy of the Shepard tone, but it was it was a different way of doing it. But I mean, it's yeah.
1: essentially serving the same. Objective as his writing, which was and the tension is building and building yes. and, and building.
2: objective is the important word here because he wanted an objective score. And I'm the guy who needs to have a tune to, if, to actually get going on. And so the first thing that Chris did was he took away my favorite toy, you know, or, or you know, my safe, actually my security blanket. No tunes. But this idea of ratcheting tension up. And as he himself says, it made editing somewhat really complicated Mm. because we started off, I gave him a 100-minute piece of music that sort of had never been done before. So therefore, none of us knew that you couldn't cut it. Mm. Uh, As as soon as you started cutting into it, you would see it would just fall apart. So since, since we now had the new idea... There were no... We, we couldn't phone anybody for solutions, you know. Usually in music, there is a solution right. that somebody has <laughs> has had before. It became just this monumental task of... You know, uh, and I, I was thinking about it because it wasn't just me. It was, a, you know, it was a team of fellow synthesists here, you know, p- people I love working with. It was Alex Gibson, the music editor, and Ryan Rubin, I mean, doing... Extraordinary work, all hand in hand with Richard King, because you know sometimes we would end up getting the sound effects from Richard and manipulating the sound effects into music. So, you know, to to create this totally coherent and cohesive world that was the world that Chris wanted to present, without getting caught at it. I mean, this is a thing I learned from Terry Malick. You never want the hand of the artist to be visible.
1: <laughs> well, and and you have said quote this score is chris nolan's score this movie is one man's vision this was the closest collaboration that i ever had with a director where even though he would never ever play a note he somehow played every note that was in the score close quote and i just want to ask you if what you're referring to there were a couple of things that i saw in various articles or things that initially he gave you his pocket watch that was supposed to be kind of a indicator of what he was looking for and then also I guess very timidly he asked you to include something in the oh, score yeah, yeah. that he doesn't Remember. normally do. So No,
2: no, no, no. no. I mean, well, f- this wasn't going to be a secret that we work that this movie was yet again a movie that dealt with time in, a, in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And so rather than you know what we did on Inception or what we did in Interstellar where we are sort of disguising that our our underlying theme is is time, just by starting off with the sound of the pocket watch, just declare ourselves, okay, this is where we are. We're starting off with a pocket watch. Okay, now let us show you what we can do with that and where we can take that. So being very upfront with the audience, just if you think about it, just like that voice in the Lion King, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, this is going to be different. This is not a princess musical. Mm -hmm. And being very open about that then the the piece you're referring to is really there's a piece of music that i've always loved which is Elgar's enigma variations Mm -hmm. and in england they are i think they are felt that they sum up the spirit of the country Mm -hmm. i really do think so Mm -hmm. and uh, i mean there's a the great thing about the enigma variations is it is an enigma Mm -hmm. it is variations on a theme that he never states. So there are all these mysteries and guesses what the theme actually is, you know, people have been trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what the theme is and you can go on to Google and spend an enormous amount of time looking at people's theories of what the theme is that you never hear because you only hear the variations. And there's one variation called the Nimrod variation, which for as long as I can remember, ever since I was a kid, I loved and it just gets to me. Mm-hmm. By the way, the enigma variations are all, each movement is about a different friend of Edward Elgar's, ah. including a dog, <laughs> you know? I loved the dog, but uh, but Nimrod was actually a friend, a German friend of his called Jäger. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like a, a sacred piece in as far as England is concerned. And, and you've heard it in a lot of movies as well. So when Chris phoned me, and he he was very, he was hesitant, out out of all sorts of reasons. And he said, look, you might absolutely hate this idea, but what if I said to you, Elgar, Enigma Variations? You know, would you just shudder? And I said, no, 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 I get it, I get completely why, and plus, I always felt, because there are these 14 variations, it some, somehow says, "Well, where's fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, 20? You know, it—it's like Elgar threw out, threw down the gauntlet and yeah. sa- said, "Go and write some more variations." And the other thing was. Chris and I talked about how other people had literally just taken it and thrown it into their movie, as opposed to writing a new variation, actually using the material, working with it, and making it part of the fabric of the film. And that's what you did. I mean, yes, that's, you know Ben Valfish, who is an amazing composer and amazing friend, and amazing, amazingly knowledgeable. You guys work together going back to twelve years a slave, slave I think. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. So so we have a bash at the enigma variation, you know. <laughs> you know, and it became this game as well of holding off on the theme, you know, like hinting at it, disguising it, disguising it so much, you know, and and the, and then just letting the letting those few notes just just pop out just for a moment. We, We just give it to you for just for a moment. And then, you know, then it recedes back into our sort of far more abstract version of it.
1: Did Christopher Nolan say to you when he asked for this something that he recently said to, I think the Hollywood Reporter, but he said he did not think he shared this with you at the time, which was that just a few
2: months earlier. I know that.
1: Above his dad. The song had played at his father's funeral, and so for him it was particularly moving.
2: Well, we talked about Ronnie, right? So maybe I, I loved his father. Uh-huh. I oh, loved his father. his father. I loved his father. I loved. This was a man erudite, articulate, and oh, so passionate about music. And he would come to all our sessions, and we would have the best conversations. I remember. I remember walking into a room, walking into a conversation about Charles Ives, you know, that he and one of the musicians were having. And I I was thinking, God, I love being in a room with this man because he wants to talk about things nobody else talks about that I'm passionate about, you know. So, So I didn't know that they had played it at his funeral. But I don't know if I'm giving too much away. You know, look. Chris and I when did we you say we 2005 yeah so how long have we worked together? It's, it's been a while yeah so a lot of life has gone under the bridge in that time and I so respected his father and and I, everything I write has to co- comes from a personal somewhere or the other and that you know when I work with Chris, I can't help but think about you know, let's do something that his dad would be proud of. Mm-hmm. Like, There comes a responsibility that if you had the honor to have met a man who, uh, who was so interesting and vibrant and had such a great sense of aesthetics and had such a true love of music, and he's the father of your director, that you better honor that.
1: Well, if I can take just five more minutes of your time, if you don't mind, I want to make sure we acknowledge the great work that you also did last year on Blade Runner 2049, and then close with what we call rapid fire, just sort of the first thing that comes to your mind. But with Blade Runner 2049, I guess it was a bit of an unusual circumstance because it had already been underway with johan johansson
2: but i wasn't going to touch it with no, a. no of course of course <laughs> so you get a call from another person who you'd worked with on 12 years a slave no i i work, i started working with joe walker in 1988 at the bbc so a
1: lo- okay a long time okay. before
2: that uh and so wh- how does that conversation go oh very simple joe goes we're a bit stuck here can you help us out and i'm going absolutely no way i'm i'm going on tour tomorrow that's it you know i'm i'm gone And the way I remember it, it's like I hang up the phone, and within 10 minutes, my door comes open, it's him and Denis walking in, (laughs) and they go, well, would it make a difference if we said, what about getting Ben Walfish involved? And I said, it would make a difference, sure, it would make a difference, because Ben's brilliant and all this, but... I got one more night before I'm, I'm gone. So show me the movie. And the two of them sort of looked at each other and went, well, actually, we haven't even looked at the whole movie ourselves. And we never shown it to anybody. I said, Well, here we go. Here we go. You got this <laughs> evening, you know, get it. All and right. we and, and you know, Ben came over. And we watched it. And I was sitting at my keyboard watching it. Right? and And we get to the end of it. So rather than Saying something, I just started playing. I mean, I answered, you know, it's if the movie is a question and they came in with a question, what are we going to do with this, right? Mm-hmm. That is the question. My answer was in, in the language that I'm most articulate in. You know, I just started playing something and I could see Denis genuinely getting excited. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, f- you know, so we spent the night playing around with not you know now there was a tune and then ben went over to the piano and we just we, so so we were doing things things were ideas were happening
1: now people will remember that the original blade runner score was composed by vangelis, vangelis who just a year after scoring chariots of fire did things with electronic music that i guess hadn't really been done much in films with the Blade Runner score. Oh, totally. And I just wondered, as somebody who's
2: clearly an electronic music buff and expert. Well, I I used to know Angelus pretty well. You did. So, and plus both of us worked so much with Ridley Scott. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover. And actually, I said to Denis, I think it would be a good thing if he was part of this. So I wrote I actually wrote him a letter, I, 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 you know, really truly from the heart, you know, reminding him of, you know, the the old days when he was living in London and we would see each other and wow. we would just, you know, jam and stuff like this. And I got Denis and a Walker to go to Paris to deliver the letter. and wow. But it just time wise. There's a reason Chris and I make movies about time. Yeah. You know. Time is the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I just think it didn't work out time wise. I mean, look, they already had the problem of, of me being gone and, and, and communicating from a tour bus, <laughs> you know, while Ben was sitting here in a studio. And then so the Vangelis thing didn't work out. But but for me it it actually seemed there should be one commonality. Between the old score and the new score, and that is to use the same orchestra that Vangelis used. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you think about Star Wars or you think of Raiders or any you know, there's a sound, it's the sound of that orchestra. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, you think the LSO, you know, and with Vangelis, the way he treats electronics, and it's especially this old, really cranky synthesizer the yamaha cs80 that nobody uses anymore because they have a design fault if you plug the pedals in the wrong way around they start burning (laughs) i mean literally i mean they will catch fire in front of your eyes it's you know but i had one in storage and and they weigh I, i don't know i can't remember how much they weigh i think it's 250 pounds. Oh of, uh, really heavy. So, you had one during of the few this, that are out there. Well, yeah, during this conversation, you know, after watching the movie, you know, I'm starting to play, I say to, to my two assistants, Do you think you can find this thing in storage? And they dragged it in. And this is a thing that is known for just being never working. And we plugged it in, and it was perfect. That's amazing. So I went off on tour, Ben was working, then I had a 10-day break between the European part of the tour and the American part of the tour where I was supposed to have a rest. Mm -hmm. That never happened. Oh, jeez. You know, I I never worked so hard. But weirdly, one of the things was I became, and I loved it, I became Ben's synth player. (laughs) You know, Ben is a much better player, but there's something... What this synthesizer does, it truly amplifies who you are somehow, your touch. It was so back to, we are so used to working with a mouse and looking for the cursor on the screen and all that stuff. You don't have to do that with this. You shut your eyes because everything is where it's supposed to be. And you just start playing and things start happening. And it did do that up until not quite the last note when it, died it did die die, (laughs) you know and and it was sort of like okay i think we're done we we got it well all right so here
1: is the last thing this rapid fire which i'd be very curious to know your your answers to i guess the first one is the one that can't be answered in a quick quick soundbite but just tell us where we are talking now why it looks the way it looks and what hours of the day you tend to be in here
2: we're in my studio which i modeled after Ah, uh, let me be kind. It's really a library, but it's full of old synthesizers that I love, full of guitars that I love, and it's a fun room. I mean, it's because I spend 98% of my life in here. I mean, my life is, you know, I mean, if people want to know about the crazy Hollywood life mm-hmm. that people live, this is what I do. I wake up, I come to the studio, I work until I drop, and I go back <laughs> home to sleep just to wake up and come. What's today? Today's Saturday. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy, but it's weekend because less phone calls and I can get more music done. Amazing. And so, you're still a late-night person as yes. a probably a holdover from
1: those days when the only time you could get in the studio to do your work was yeah. when it was closed to the regular people
2: plus I get I get better ideas I, I don't know you know we, we're all you know there, there's some people here who start at five o'clock in the morning because that's when they get their ideas yeah
1: what are your biggest sources of inspiration I know you've said that knowing the color palette of a film is actually very important and you feel that light and sound are, are same it's the
2: same, the same thing. thing it's it's well it isn't but it is you know it's it's waveforms and frequencies But they are so related, and I so need to know what the color palette is that the director chose and what's the story I'm telling. You know, I mean, story is everything for me, you know, and it's not necessarily the story that is being said in words and images on the screen. You know, I think there's a subtext that gives me an enormous amount of freedom, and you know, I have to tap into that subtext to inspire me.
1: How long on average does it take you to finish a film score? And are you generally working on multiple at once, jumping back and forth? Or do you tend to focus more on, on one?
2: Uh, I can only focus on one. Okay. And then occasionally I can I can think about stuff that's hovering out there. And sometimes that's a, that's a good thing. You know, it's like sometimes you have to have a sobby between the steak and the cheese plate. <laughs> do you mean? And the length? I thought I worked on Dunkirk for seven months, but somebody just told me it was 11 months. Wow. Blade Runner, on the other hand, one day and then 10 days. But, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't thinking about it. I mean, you know, I would go on stage, come off stage, get onto the bus and think about Blade Runner. So, so, you know, it's, it's... Think about it. There's this old joke that the first Beatles album took 45 minutes to record and the second one took even longer. You know, it's but it took them their whole life to get to that point. I mean, it's it's the amount, it's the thinking time is the experimentation time. Dunkirk just became incredibly complex because every sound and every note were, you know, I had to build instruments. I had to build the instrument that would play the note and to go, Back to this thing we were talking about about Chris earlier on, I had such a sense of him sitting next to me, literally, you know. Because we've done that, Mm -hmm. you know, where he just puts the. I'm so used to him just having a chair next to me, and we're just we're talking and we're playing, you know. Even if he wasn't in the room, which was most of the time, because he had his hands full. Trust me, his ghost was present you know his aesthetic was present the questions i asked myself of what the next move would be were questions chris was what asking me
1: how do you know when you're done with a score
2: i'm never done with it part of what was so delightful delicious about being out on the road and playing the old music was that every night i was Writing new inner lines, changing things, finding new solutions, or finding new questions. A few
1: months ago, you turned sixty. Happy birthday! Thank you. What keeps you working so hard? Two, three, sometimes four movies a year, plus concerts and other things. Is there
2: something? That I don't just... forget the television stuff. Of Blue course. Planet, amazing. I mean, not so bad. No, you know, Dunkirk, Cottela, Blue Planet, and Blade Runner. It could have been worse.
1: Well, so what is it though that, are you, are you trying to prove something to yourself still? Is there something that you haven't done? You know, you could you could take it easy and sit by the pool or play golf or do other things. Why do you keep working so hard?
2: Because I don't work. The operative word in music is play. And I've done that since I was a little kid. And I, you know, other kids play with Legos, I play with notes and sounds. Why would anybody want to stop playing? I mean, it's only because somebody tells you whatever you're supposed to do. But the playfulness, I mean, the playfulness is what keeps you alive. The playfulness is what keeps you going. The playfulness is is what we just don't have enough of. You know, I mean, Look at today look at today we we're here with a government that has shut down we have we are in a situation where nobody seems to be able to speak to anybody in some sort of intelligent articulate and nice way but i promise you i get a bunch of musicians from any nation all nations into this room and we're just you know we might not be able to speak the same words but you know we start playing music and things start to happen because other than play the other important thing you learn as a musician is you learn how to listen because you want to hear what the other guy is playing so that you can put a framework you can you can be the frame for him and make make his playing sound gorgeous and wonderful and beautiful so i like hanging out with musicians i like hanging you know and that means our filmmakers, you know, you that means you have to share your toys and you have to be able to play. You are an amazing guy. Thank you so much for doing
1: this. I really appreciate Thank you. it. Thanks.
2: You're so welcome.
1: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.